medical department, only two go to the bench, and we are more than a dozen. We don't train, we only recover. That's a, that's a situation. Preparation, hard work, confidence in overcoming those difficult moments. Today we're still outside Liverpool and we are going to the first part of the medical test. Welcome to this Football Medicine and Performance podcast. I'm Elja Zais, a medical student in London and your host for today's episode. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Dan Martin. Dan is the consultant performance nutritionist for Southampton FC's first team. Prior to joining Southampton, he worked with Huddersfield Towns FC first team. He also currently works with the Haas Formula One team, the Professional Jockeys Association and the English Institute of Sport. He completed both his PhD in performance nutrition and behavior change and postdoctoral research at Liverpool John Moores University, where he's now a research supervisor for PhD students alongside his applied roles. Thank you for joining us today, Dan. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the invite. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So today we're going to discuss how you support elite footballers with optimizing their nutrition and the behavior changes that are key to achieving this. So first question, tell us a bit more about your career to date. What got you interested in performance nutrition and behavior change and what drew you to working in elite football? Certainly. Um, I guess my roots into, I guess, sports science and working as part of the performance team is similar to many other people's, an initial degree in sport and exercise science. And my early career was actually in teaching, um, teaching like 16 to 19 year olds, A-level um, PE and A-level sports science. Um, and after I did that for five years and it was after a couple of years. Um, I asked myself the question, would I like to do this right the way through to retirement age? Burning my, my real passion is, is sport and professional sport. And, and the answer to that was no. Um, so alongside working full-time as a teacher for a few years, I, I completed my master's degree in sport exercise nutrition and took on some applied work, some of it initially voluntary, which led into paid work. And at the end of that, um, that period, um, there was an opportunity to do a PhD at Liverpool John Moores University, where the remit really was, or the brief, was to develop uh, an industry-wide education, nutrition education platform in professional horse racing and it was there after doing a lot of reading around nutrition education in sports not necessarily pedagogy which I'd studied in the past to be a teacher um I realized that nutrition isn't just content it's not just information it's it's a behavior and so therefore my reading around behavior change or behavioral science um started and and really captured my my interest I guess um, and it, from there, that the, the research that I've done to date and, and as much as I can, my applied work is um, where, where necessary, so grounded in behaviour change science as well. To answer the what drew me to working in, in, in football, there were always two sports I wanted to work in. One was Formula One, the other was, was Premier League football. It's, it's our national sport and we're lucky that it's, it, it's renowned the world, world around as being the most intense, most demanding sort of league in the world. Um, so, yeah, I think anyone that works, or most people that work in sport, they'd like to have a stint working in football. And, and, and that was it, really. In 2018, the phone rang and there was an opportunity to work at Huddersfield Town. And, and later in 2020, the opportunity came to work at Southampton. And, and that's where I am today. OK, that's great. That's, that's really interesting. So can you give us some examples of the typical nutrition-related goals of elite footballers? 
I can, yeah. I mean, I guess it depends and it's it's context specific and, it, and it's player specific. What I like to do when I go into a club and, and I work with an athlete is, I guess, perform a bit of an ease analysis is what does the what does the person need? What does the athlete need? So if we look at the, uh, the determinants of performance, uh, what does a player need to, to perform well on the pitch on a, on a Saturday or a Sunday? One side of it's very aerobic base. It's a 90-minute endurance sport. So they need good VO2 max, lactate threshold, um, economy and efficiency. On the other side, there's the there's their anaerobic side and the explosive side, the acceleration, the deceleration, um, the, the you know the striking. Um, so is there from a if we're talking about match day, what are the nutritional processes that are put in place, either by the club already or by the player themselves? Um, and are they doing everything they can on a match day to, to to do everything they can to support the performance? If we have a look at it on across the training week, naturally the coaches and the and the performance staff are going to want to, I guess, train the individual components um, and get the adaptations out of training to, to to support the needs of a match. So again, from the aerobic side of things, we're looking at um, capillarization, the type of muscle fibre um, adaptations, greater blood volume from the anaerobic side it's more around i guess developing strength and power properties of the muscles the tendon and ligament um integrity if you like and again i'm asking the question what are the nutrition processes in place to support those adaptations and then i guess the thing that underpins everything is just good general health and well-being um gut health general immune function cognitive health again what on a day-to-day basis what's the nutrition strategy that I put in place to support those things and what I try to do is effectively do a bit of a needs analysis. You could do it however you want, a red, amber, green system, a one, two, three system in terms of what are the areas that I'm satisfied they're sort of they're doing pretty well. It's, it's low priority. But probably more importantly, what are those amber and, and red areas, the, the ones that are more, more of a priority, things that I need to address to effectively create a bit of a long list and then create a short list, which are the two or three things we're going to get the greatest help or quite often in sport performance gain uh, by developing an intervention. So there isn't necessarily a typical one. Um, I guess that's why it's quite individual. We'll go through this process and figure out what does each individual player need and and we'll come up with a strategy as such. Yeah, sure. Okay, so I suppose leading on from that, um, I mean, you talk about how it's obviously tailored to each individual player and, you know, it sounds like it's a very dynamic process, which makes a lot of sense in Premier League football where, the schedule can be changing and very packed as well. Um, so just building on that, you know, how are nutrition strategies different perhaps around match days versus training days? Yeah, you could even go one step further and say how are nutrition strategies different between one training day and, and another training day? Because um, not all training days are the same. Um, the The coaching model is periodized. So for example, a a traditional match day minus two would be quite low load. Um, the preparing for the for the game in two days time, so therefore the nutritional requirements are, need to be tailored to it. So in terms of a lower fuel than compared to, for example, a match day minus three or minus four, which on a, on a traditional one game per week schedule is quite higher intensity. They've, they've had enough time to recover from the previous match, and there's still enough lead in time to the next game to get some. So, you know, some good intent and some good inter- um, intensity into them from a training point of view. So therefore the nutrition on those particular days is different because we need to fuel those sessions. We know they're going to be longer. We know the workload's going to be higher. Um, so no two training days are necessarily the same. Um, but in terms of how does that look in comparison to match day, 
for me, the, the, or I guess for, for many nutritionists, I'd hope is the fueling for the match day starts the day before match day minus one. Um, and match day itself is about topping up the glycogen stores that you should have been trying to saturate the day before and just on the whole having foods that players are familiar with, are safe with. Um, and obviously we give guidance around getting the, the timings just right. Um, and then the, the priority then after it is uh, is getting the recovery, uh, getting the recovery underway um, straight after the final whistle um, and into the evening. Mm-hmm. Okay. And when you talk about fuel, um, I'm sure this can this can uh, drill down to a lot of detail. But as a just sort of general idea, what, what kind of you know macronutrients or even micronutrients are you looking to focus on for that? Um, I mean, you made the comparison between sort of match day minus three or four versus say match day minus one or a match day. Yeah, so quite often protein, as an example, remain quite consistent across the training week, which um, is sort of on on the higher end. So minimum of 1.6 up to around two grams of protein for every kilo body weight. Um, And similar for fat, so that could stay quite consistent. The the thing that I'd change day by day would be the, the fuel macronutrient, which is carbohydrate. So on a match day minus two, for example, where training intensity is quite low, um, therefore carbohydrate intake could be pretty moderate maybe three grams per kilo uh, which is lower than probably what the literature suggests but having worked around it for a while if we maintain it too high across the, the season maybe the, we, we see like weight gain or body composition shifts um, whereas for example on a match day minus one where the, the purpose is to saturate glycogen stores um, for, for performance the next day um, there can be in excess of six or seven grams per kilo, literally suggests anywhere up to 10. But then it becomes, if you, if you try and, and get 10 in, the pure volume and quantity of food sometimes is not is not that easy to do. But certainly um, six or seven grams per kilo um, of carbohydrate upwards on a match day minus one. So in terms of the, like the general nutrition strategies, do they differ then between off-season, in-season and pre-season? Because I imagine the training loads, well, the, the training loads are going to be different in those different phases of a, a season. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we'll jump straight into the off-season. I'm, I'm a big advocate of, at least for the, well, the first couple of weeks, the players need to sort of recover, I guess, mentally as, as much as they do physically. And I think a good couple of weeks off with, with no priority from a training or nutrition point of view is a good idea. That's my personal philosophy. Um, but a lot of the, the modern day footballers sort of treat themselves as athletes year round. You hear horror stories in the 80s, 90s, even the early 2000s where players may come back having done six to eight weeks of very little activity wise and and really gone to town on, on junk food, calorie dense food, alcohol and the comeback, you know, seven, eight, nine kilos heavier. Um, a lot of the players nowadays don't indulging that anyway um, and then from the other side from the club side after that initial sort of rest period they've sort of given an off-season training program to do anyway so my nutrition support trying to go hand in hand with that really and that sort of um, increased intensity through the off-season as we, as we get ready for pre-season but on the whole um, yeah training load exercise expert energy expenditures down in the off-season so therefore in well, fingers crossed um, energy intakes sort of mirrors that as well but certainly uh, pre-season a really busy really intense high load um, phase of the season um, sort of two or three training sessions per day uh, sometimes uh, want to get as much uh, I guess exposure into some of the players whilst you've got that time 
Um, and therefore, again, the nutrition strategies reflect that from a more than anything from a from a fueling point of view. Okay, and when a player is injured, um, would you suggest alterations to um, their nutrition strategy? And if so, what would you suggest? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, it'll depend on the injury, but nine times out of ten, um, training load sort of decreases. Let's take an example to make it easier. And let's say it's a lower limb injury, a knee or an ankle, where we know running is going to be out of the question for, for, for a few weeks. So naturally... Um, the first thing that we'd want to do is probably decrease energy intake to match the decrease in energy expenditure. But I guess what you don't want to do is go too aggressive because you don't want to starve the body of the energy and, and nutrients it needs to actually get on with with repairing the, you know, the, the injury or whatever it is. Um, but it's a little bit cliche, but when any athlete in any sport really, but in football, are injured, it's also an opportunity to try and address some of the areas um, I guess of of concern or of of limitation, um, and for some people that may be physical to do with the body. So it could be, let's say, body composition sort of drifted. Um, it's been it's the, the cards marked. It's a case of we'd like to get this back, but it's not enough of a priority in the season. Um, obviously, not enough time in the season if it's a congested fixture period to deal with that. All of a sudden, if they found themselves injured, they've got a bit of time on their hands, eight, 10 weeks. You can put in a, an intervention there alongside the, the rehab. Um, so when they do come back, it's not just a case of my knee's fixed or my ankle's fixed. It's actually, um, I'm, I'm fighting for it, I'm in good shape. For other people, it could be young players, it could be doing stuff away from the pitch. It could be it could be a good opportunity to get some education into them. It could be some cooking skills, you know, sort of whatever it is, but use the opportunity whilst you've got a bit of time on your hands to... Uh, yeah, address the address the areas that have been been marked for development. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I mean that's really interesting, and I think especially since, um, as you describe it, as it could be a silver lining for sort of a long term impact on a player's nutrition knowledge and understanding and and how they're going to apply it for the rest of their career. Okay, and now at the time that we're recording this, the holy month of Ramadan recently started for Muslims. And during this time, many Muslims will abstain from eating or drinking from sunrise until sunset, including professional footballers. Um, so with this in mind, how would you help a player achieve optimal nutritional intake during Ramadan? Yeah, good question. And as you say, very timely. Um, I've got, I think I've got better as my experience of working with players that practice Ramadan um, has has become greater. Um, the, the approach that I take at the minute is similar to as I mentioned earlier, is trying to keep it um, quite individual. And so learning A, about the practice itself, but then probably more importantly, learning about their practice and what, what do they do? Because there are slight nuances. Some players are fully committed and fast right the way through the month, whether it's match day or not. But then I found some players may not do it on match day or may not do it when they've travelled away, but they'll do it for home games. So it's finding what does each individual player do, um, generally speaking, and then sort of breaking down the timelines of the day in terms of what time are they at the minute waking up to eat before sunrise? What are they eating? What are they eating um, after the sun sets? Um, what does a sleep look like? And effectively um, working with what they already do and trying to get the right foods or the right quantity of foods in those eating periods that we've got. The trap that a lot of people fall into or forget about is the energy expenditure is still often quite the same, 
But during the month, because of the eating windows, um, the energy intake is nowhere near what it needs to be. And so over the month, they end up losing weight or lose appetite, lose energy. So therefore, that impacts how they, how they perform. Um, what we're trying to do effectively is still trying to get as close as we can the same amount of energy in. But rather than having it over five or six intakes across the day, what you do in normal times, it's trying to, can we get the same amount of energy in into these two feeding windows? Um, and it's not always easy because they're having to get up in the middle of, well, it's effectively the middle of the night if they're getting up at four in the morning to have a feed to then try and go back to sleep. So it's working with them as much as you can on a one-to-one basis to say, what foods do you like? What foods don't you like? How can we get as much as we can in during these two windows? But at the same time, we're then not going to disrupt sleep. So it's finding the the sweet spot in the middle, which is easier said than done. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's a good challenge all the same. Yeah. Okay. And do you advise players uh, in, in general to take supplements? And if so, which supplements do you typically encourage players to take? Yeah. Um, if you transfer it in a word, I'd say yes. Um, but then as always, it's nuanced and say it depends. Um, the good paper came out earlier this year, I think, or not back end of last year, titled Food First But Not Food Only um, by. Professor Graham Close, um, he was like one of my supervisors at John Moore's University. And I think it sums it up in a, in a perfect sentence because um, as practitioners, we always do advocate food first. And um, let's say, for example, on a, on a training day, I wouldn't be pushing things like sports drinks and energy gels around training when we can get the carbohydrates from food. So if it's, for example, as I mentioned earlier, a match day minus three, we know that there's going to be some intense and some intensity in that training session. I wouldn't want to see players having a low carbohydrate breakfast, scrambled eggs and smoked salmon, and then reaching for energy gels 20 minutes into a session. In the case, we get the carbohydrates in the breakfast. Equally, at the end of a session, if we're going for lunch within 15 minutes, or even if it's within half an hour or so, I wouldn't be pushing protein shakes on some cases. Well, we're probably going to have a 50 gram feed and a protein in half an hour anyway. Um, so in those circumstances, no. But there are all the um, nutrients that you, you're simply not going to get in a, the in the quantities through food. It'd be an impossible task. Things like creatine, for example, beta-alanine. Um, yes, you get from meat-based products, but the quantity of animal meat, like animal uh, protein you'd have to eat, it's an impossible task to get the amount that you need, what the research suggests, we're going to get a performance gain from it. Um, so if we're talking about performance, do I advise supplements? Then yes, I do, but it's the right ones at the right time. From a health point of view, I think it's rather than throwing, um, slinging a supplement strategy sort of blind, if it's in your budget to do diagnostics, i.e. do some blood tests, Simple stuff such as um, vitamin D or, or iron, ferritin, omega-3 to omega-6 ratios. If you can identify, is there actually actually a need by actually having a blood test, um, go ahead and do that. Um, if you don't have the budget, then I guess use your, um, your intuition and your judgment as to whether you think sh- should we supplement. Yeah, okay. And so I suppose just to clarify on that, if, if uh, you're doing blood tests and you see, um, you know, um, low iron, low vitamin D, then you would um, suggest, you know, maybe supplements of, of vitamin D and iron. But then if, if a player's coming up as fine on the range, then obviously you, you're not going to suggest it. So it's not a blanket strategy. It's, it's for each individual. That's what you're saying, right? 
Yeah, and I think for any practitioner in clubs, if you've got a club protocol, and so and, and just like you'd have reference ranges, so if they fall into X category, no need to supplement. If they fall into Y category, if we're talking vitamin D, for example, supplement them with 4,000 IU per day. If they fall into X category, okay, they're really deficient. Let's put them on 8,000 IU per day or see what the what the club doctor, club doctor thinks if, uh, if it needs to be stronger than that. Yeah. Okay, and um, so you did talk, you did touch on this a little bit. So talking about sort of like energy gels and sports drinks. Um, so the next question is, you know, what are your views on sports drinks and energy gels? And I ask because, um, you know, see players all the time using them, you know, right from weekend warrior to, you know, uh, professionals. Um, and there has been some criticism of the research for, uh, well, I'm talking about sports drinks in particular that suggests they're beneficial performance, but, you know, th- are there, are there some drawbacks to this research? How reliable is it? So as an expert in nutrition, would you say they have any particular benefit over drinking water alongside a nutritious, well-planned diet? Um, I think generally through the week, in my opinion, that they're, they're, they're necessary. I mean, it goes back to that, getting the energy from, from the foods around the training window anyway. Um, and... To be honest, unless you are, I mean, the research shows if, unless you're taking part in pretty intense exercise, that's a minimum of an hour, probably 90 minutes long. There's no need to fuel during exercise until you reach that sort of window anyway. And almost all training sessions um, across an entire season aren't going to exceed that intensity for that amount of time, um, no matter what the training day is, whether it's a match day minus four or a match day minus two. So for me, through the training week, there's not really, a need for them in football at least um on match day itself there's probably the probably is a place for them um around half time refueling if there's opportunity to grab a drink um at any point in the game a it's some um, exogenous carbohydrates also coming in which is great um they also have electrolytes again which is great so they've probably got um um a role and a place on match day um to Whatever, whatever research you want to follow to do with muscle glycogen sparing if, you, if you're bringing it in through through a drink or through a gel but um, through the week um, I'd, I'd sort of save, save you money or save your budget and, and as you say um, I'd probably hydrate with water or electrolytes and, and get the get the carbohydrates if that's what you're looking for from, from the food mm-hmm. Yeah Okay, that's great So which club staff do you work with most? You talked a bit about there about how you work for example, the club doctor looking at certain, you know, blood test ranges and that informing whether to suggest certain supplements. But, um, you know, which other club staff do you work with? And I guess depending on the on the day or on the on the context, all of them. If we're, if we're working with with the injured players, you work very close with the physios, um, making sure that um, they've got what they need. Depending on what phase of the injury that, that they're in, are they? Uh, on the right diet generally and then also are there any supplements that will go um, that that'll be beneficial um, on a day-to-day basis um, as someone that's only in a club a couple of days a week in a consultancy role I'm there less often than I am more um, so making sure the strategy that I guess I've sort of devised and put into place everyone else within the performance team knows what to do on a day-to-day basis because there's not a nutritionist there to, to do it for them so head of performances knows what that is, the strength and conditioning coaches. And the unsung heroes quite often are the interns. Without the interns, quite often the performance delivery or the nutrition delivery um, 
um, it's doing the basics really, really, really well and making sure the right things at the right place at the right time set up for, for, for the players to do. And quite often that's an intern's role. So it's making sure the intern knows what, what to do and, and, and guiding them well. But it's not necessarily a medical and sports science. For me, as a nutritionist, one of the closest relationships you've got to have is with the performance chef because if they're not bringing the forget grams per kilos per day or, or per meal if you don't have someone there to bring that from the paper in numbers to life that's appealing and appetizing um it goes out the window anyway um so you've got to build a a good um yeah, relationship with your performance chef and, and and the kitchen staff um yeah to help help bring the strategy to life and so the player's going to want to going to want to eat what you're suggesting yeah that makes a lot of sense so just moving on now more towards talking about behavior change and um, the behaviors to support optimal nutrition. So why isn't having nutrition knowledge enough to create long lasting change for many people? Yeah, because I think when we talk about knowledge and education as a whole, quite often that education, nutrition isn't an exam. It's a behavior. Every time you make a food choice, it's a behavior. Um, so, when you equip someone with heaps of knowledge or education and they just need to then get out of their mind and put it down to paper and exam, that's fine. But when you're asking people to, um, when from a nutrition point of view, it's a behavior and they're making these changes every day, knowledge alone um, isn't always enough of a reason to change the habits of a lifetime sometimes or, or what it is that you're doing. Um, you could take, put sports one side for, for a minute and look at something as, basic as, as smoking i think the statistic is something like one in six or one in seven adults in the uk still smoke cigarettes even though the, the unequivocally the, the education is that if you smoke cigarettes you're probably going to do yourself harm there's definitely no good to come from smoking but people still do it anyway and there's many reasons for that maybe it's stress maybe it's social and it's the same with food um so we can tell people players what to eat at what time and what quantities um but if there's other things that's going on around them to detract from the knowledge that they've got um, to make a different decision. Uh, knowledge on its own is a bit of, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's not great. So there's, yeah, there's more to it than that. Yeah. And that leads nicely into my next question, which is in a previous interview, I heard you talk about the behavior change wheel framework and the combi model of behavior change. So can you briefly explain these to those of us unfamiliar with them and how you use them to support players with behavior change around nutrition? I can, yeah. So, so the COMB model, so the B stands for behavior. So if we want to get someone to perform a new behavior or change an existing behavior, we work on the assumption that you need three things. The, the, the first one is capability. That's what the C in COMB stands for. So capability means is the person capable of doing what we want them to do with the behavior. So by capability, we're really talking about the knowledge. Do they have, do they know what to eat at what time and what quantity? If there was a buffet, could they make the right choice because they know what it is that they need to choose? Um, and the other side to capability is actually having the physical skills. So then if they go home and it's not made for them at the club, could they prepare what it is that they know that they need to eat at that, that time? And I think as nutritionists, um, as in fact, right across sports science, I think we're really good at that side of it because we naturally do that. We educate players to say we should eat this at this time, this quantity, and I'll, I'll teach you how to do it. But that's that on its own is not enough. 
Um, the O stands for the opportunity. So you need the person to have the opportunity to do what you want them to do. Um, so think of that as the environments that they're, they're in most of the time. So it could be the club environment, it could be the home environment, it could be the commute between work every day, it could be the team bus, it could be the away hotel. Are those environments set up so the player can do what you want them to do, whatever it is? Um, and then the other side of the opportunity is who's in those environments. So I've got people in those environments that are advocating what I'm suggesting. Um, who are saying, don't forget to take your supplement. Don't forget you need at least 40 grams of protein on your plate, whatever it is. Or I've got people that at best aren't reinforcing that uh, message and at worst are actually undermining that message and actually encouraging the player not to do it. So you could have other, other people around saying, Dan doesn't know what he's talking about. Dan was never a player, what does he know? And then it's, it's, blocking the, it's blocking the player from doing what you want them to do. So you need the capability to do it and the opportunity. And the M stands for the motivation. So assuming that they know what to do at what time and what quantity they've got the skills to do it, the opportunity is set up. It can still fall down if ultimately they don't have the motivation. They don't want to do it anyway. They can skirt around that and, and do something differently. Um, and, there's two, and there's two parts to the motive side of it as well. One of them is more automatic, which is more impulsive and emotional. So if it's been a bad day at the office, a bad day at the training ground, conflict with the manager, conflict with a teammate, they might have got dropped, whatever it was. Some people find solace in food um, and it doesn't matter how much they know that they shouldn't do what they're going to do or that how much they should do what we want them to do and the whole environment's set up great and the partner at home saying, do this. If they've had a bad day and the head's gone, they'll do something different. Um, and then the other side to it is more, reflect. we call it reflective motivation, which is more values and belief-based. Um, so ultimately, if you get, for example, a senior professional that's done everything in, in, um, in, in the game, on what is not a fantastic diet or a sub-elite diet, you can't necessarily change their beliefs to say, if you do this, you're going to get better. So it's like, I've done everything. I could, I've done it that way. So you're not necessarily going to, I'm not going to necessarily going to change that now. Um, so yeah, if you want someone to change a behavior or bring in a new behavior, the person needs the capabilities to do it, in order what to do, the opportunity to perform it, but then also um, have that, um, have the motivation to do it and it's part of that stability emotionally and some of it's more of a, of a values and belief-based thing. Um, and if we want to change any of these things, this is where the behaviour change wheel comes into it. There's in effect nine things that we can do. So if we're talking about improving someone's capability, we can obviously educate them, we can train them. As I said, we do that well. So those are two of the nine interventions. If we want to make the opportunities uh, better or improve the opportunity to do it, we can restructure the environments that we're in and Quite often, club environments are world-class, particularly in the, in the Premier League. But what do the opportunities look like at home? So do, do, do those environments at home need restructuring um, to ultimately enable them to do the desired behaviour and restrict them from doing the undesired behaviour? Um, and if it, we're talking about the, the motives, um, we can use different techniques. So some of it's persuasion, some of it's providing incentives to do the thing that we'd like them to do more of. Or you can go the other way and you can be coercive. Um, some people think like you can't do that, but you can. It's a recognised sort of behaviour change intervention. It's a method. Um, and for some people, it works. Um, I think we all prefer to use the proverbial carrot rather than the stick, but some people need the stick. They need a little bit of scaring into nudging them in the right direction to, to start doing something different. That's really, really interesting. And do you mind just expanding on when you talk about incentives and, and coercion, what have you used in practice? Um, in terms of these tools? The biggest one, which is not down to me, 
Um, and so it helps if you can, for example, if you can get the, the biggest consequence for a footballer, at least, is playing time. And so if you, for example, if the manager's aligned with a certain strategy and the consequence was, if you don't do this, whatever the goal is, it could, whatever the goal is, it could be form score, but nutrition is a part of it. Um, if the manager says, if you don't do this certain thing, you won't be playing until something gets sorted. That's the biggest um, either incentive, depending on where they are in the in the dynamic of the team. The incentive is if you do this, you're going to get picked. Or the other way around is if you don't do this, you're getting dropped. Um, those are the key ones. It's not always that straightforward in football. Um, and it's possibly something that you can use with... Um, sometimes it's too late to do those type of things with first-team players, and maybe it's something that you do with, with, with the younger younger people in the either in the first team or actually just just sub first team in the b team um but you'll need to do that if it's more if, if that's required for some people it's purely a an environmental restructure they quite often know what to do and they want to do it but then actually it's a case of my home environment or the people that i'm living with particularly when they're younger um they're not helping me out and so it's a case of a yeah so that's what you got to, you got to do a bit of a needs analysis and forget what is the what's the barrier and let's provide a solution to overcome it. Yeah, okay. So you answered this question a little bit at the beginning, actually. So the next bit is for me to ask you about the scenario that you started working with a new team um, and essentially what you do first. So you, I remember you talking about how you would essentially figure out a traffic light system for players and based on that, you would approach things in different ways. So could you expand a bit on that so that we can get an idea of sort of the first things you would do coming into work with a new team? Yeah, I mean, it sort of almost brings together everything that we've that we've discussed. So what I, dis, what I mentioned earlier on about doing the, the red, amber, green on an individual basis, I probably do that on a more strategic level, first of all, and actually have a step back, observe is probably the first thing that I do when I work with a new club to see what are the current strategies and processes from a nutrition point of view in place at the minute. And those questions I was posing earlier around what are they doing to support match day performance? What are they doing to support aerobic adaptations? What are they doing to support the anaerobic and explosive adaptations? And what are they doing to support the general health? I'll have a look at just a general club-wide or team-wide level. What are we doing across the board anyway? And again, sort of do a bit of a, a rag rating. Um, and if there's something that's consistent across all players, straight away you can start to identify team-wide strategies that we're going to do all together. Um, and then once you've done that, it's a case of building those one-to-one relationships and they don't happen quickly. So it's not necessarily, especially when only in two days at a time or not in six or seven days a week, uh, like a full-time nutritionist might be. So it really is then over the following weeks and months winning over um, senior players. I think sometimes if you can identify who are the key people within within a team and if I win over two or three, the best two or three people first, um, the word gets round that Dan's a good guy, is a good person, he knows what he's talking about, he's here to help, is whatever it is. And then naturally everything else starts to fall into place much quicker. Um, so I think the relationship building side of I mean take, I think this is goes for for any discipline, whether it's nutrition or whether it's you're the sports medic. I think building those relationships is much more important than than the knowledge you've got sometimes. Um and there's some days where actually the nutrition knowledge or the, the nutrition side of the role is secondary to actually just, just just the human side of it. And so those are things that I try to develop first. And once I feel like we're there, then you can start um, building some some interventions on a, on a, on a one-to-one 
on, on a one-to-one level. Okay, and let's say you're supporting a particular individual and they've taken on board all your advice, um, but they're still struggling with making sustainable changes to their nutrition. What would be what you'd try next? Yeah, and, and this does happen from time to time. I mean, if we if we stick, for example, with the the behavioral side of it, the, the combine model, let's assume, because quite often the reason these things don't change isn't because they don't know what to do. Usually they've got the capability. We've addressed all the opportunity um, environments and the people within them. So quite often it's a motivation-related thing. So is it a values and belief about values and beliefs thing so they they don't really buy into nutrition as a concept thinking i don't know if it's going to make a difference to my performance or my ability to get selected or my ability to not get selected um i don't necessarily i don't know there's just a lack of belief or value or there's a the other way around is there's not really a consequence attached to it in terms not necessarily in terms of selection but in terms of how they feel and how they feel that, that they play um and so to change someone's long-held beliefs and values, that's not something that you're going to do over one conversation, and that's much more of a slow burner. And I'm, I think that the longer I've worked, the more I've become comfortable with realising you're not going to solve um, every scenario in a, in, in a couple of conversations. Um, and sometimes it's possibly a good um, a good opportunity to make it more um, of an MDT-wide or a more holistic intervention. It's not just a nutrition and player. It's actually, well, we know what, well, we've got an idea what the uh, what the areas want to improve out, or the reasons why they're not not changing. And I think bringing on board the club psych, whether that's a the clinical or sports psych, into the into the fold as well, because I'm not qualified in that area. I've got a, a at best like a basic appreciation of why people may or may not change nutrition related behaviours. The reasons they're not changing it may have nothing to do with me. So I think it's important to bring the the experts into into, into the fold there. Um, to create, I guess, the best support package uh, for them. The other side of it could be more, if they're not doing it, is it that they, I said earlier on, there's two sides to the motivation theory side. The other side is the um, the more the more impulsive side of it. So how do they react to success or how do they success, um, react to adversity? And it might not be football adversity, it might be family adversity. And do they find solace in food? And is that actually the reason why? Um, so again, I think bringing in the experts, um, collaborating if you can with with the club psychologists to identify what's the barrier and therefore move forward. Um, and I've had a, a couple of cases in the past, particularly as players become more senior. The football is just their job. The, it's not actually the most important thing in their life, and there's things that they hold a lot more uh, dear and give them a lot more meaning than, than the job that they've got. And so sometimes, actually, if you try and attach what you're trying to achieve from a nutrition point of view, not to the football, but to the other things in their life that they find important, and that might be stuff to do with the family and with the children or things about going outside, like external businesses, and you somehow manage to attach the nutrition to those things, all of a sudden, the nutrition becomes interesting again. Um, my... Um, motive is to make sure the nutrition reflects what they need to do on, on the pitch and that's in the training ground and uh, on in the stadium but if in their mind it's helping them achieve the other thing or fulfill the other thing in their life um then it's a, it's a win-win it's a win for me and it's and, and it's a win for them um so yeah there's a few reasons why it might not be but sometimes i think bringing other people into the mix is a, is a good shout yeah 
Yeah, that's great. I mean, it sounds to me like a really key takeaway from what you're saying there is to really consider that individual player and what their motivations might be, because it might not always be football being the main thing that can motivate them. Um, and then, of course, as you say, bringing in other members of uh, other, other experts, essentially, at the club, for example. So, yeah. So, Dan, thank you so much. I'm going to draw that to a close. I found that really, really interesting um, and insightful, and I'm sure the listeners have too. So thank you very much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the FMPA podcast on Spotify or SoundCloud. Alternatively, please check out the podcast section of the FMPA website. Thank you for listening to the Football Medicine and Performance podcast. Have a great day. Bye.